He said that he had no wish to confirm some of its clauses, but that the condition of his affairs overruled his inclinations. Later, he complained that the worst of all governments was that of a king without treasure and without power. On the day after the Marquis of Halifax tendered the crown to him in the banqueting house, he told the Marquis that he fancied he was like a king in a play. But he had to maintain his part at all costs. A combination of gentry and aristocracy had, in effect, formulated a settlement that eliminated the threat of royal absolutism and protected property from arbitrary seizure. They were not interested in the idea of remedial legislation by Parliament for the sake of social good or some benign notion of order. They wanted the rewards for themselves only. So was crafted what became known as the Glorious Revolution, promoted in theory by divine providence, but supervised in effect by an organized elite, an aristocracy and oligarchy bolstered by the support of the landed gentry. The members of this elite would retain their power for the next two hundred years. The new order was bitterly opposed by those who believed their former oaths of loyalty to the deposed king could not and should not be broken. If the most solemn pact could be overturned, where could proper order and authority be found? The objectors, who refused to swear a new oath of allegiance to William and Mary, became known as non-jurors. Some of the most senior clerics in the country were of their number, among them William Sancroft, Archbishop of Canterbury. Eight bishops and four hundred clergy adopted his stance. At the coronation of William and his consort in Westminster Abbey on the 11th of April, the Archbishop was absent. The Bishop of London raised the crown. Sancroft himself was forced into retirement in the following year. The non-jurors were the measure of a divided kingdom. Many of them became Jacobites, or supporters of the exiled James, in spirit if not in practice. It cannot be doubted that loyalty to William was distinctly muted in many parts of the country, and that he was conceived by some to be a foreign king imposed in the first place by force. Yet what could be done? The crown was on his head. Indifference or resignation was the inevitable response. The convention was converted into a parliament by the new king, with the simple expedient of delivering a speech from the throne to both houses. In his coronation oath, he had consented to govern according to the statutes in parliament agreed on, and the laws and customs of the same. It was a sign of the new balance in the constitution. Yet the relationship between Crown and Parliament was not necessarily happy. In a further indication of their new power, the members refused to grant William a revenue for life, and failed fully to fund his approaching campaign against France. They had learnt the unhappy lesson of the former king who had been able to support himself without their aid. William was, as a result, wholly reliant upon frequent Parliaments to service his debts. Parliament now met every year, with sessions lasting for several months. General elections were held, on average, every two years. This quickened activity, of course, raised the temperature of the political atmosphere, encouraging what came to be known as the rage of party. This was not to the liking of the new king, who detested fractious politicians.
He did not speak good English, and was in any case reserved in nature to the point of being sullen or morose. He always longed to be back in his native land, away from the hypocrisy and importunity of the English court. He hated pomp. His manner and appearance did not necessarily recommend themselves to his new subjects. He spoke slowly and briefly. He was by nature calculating, cool, and methodical. Though he was of slight frame, he managed to carry himself with authority. He was an asthmatic, however, and his conversation was interrupted by a continual deep cough. He soon removed himself from the fog and damp air of Westminster to the relatively healthy ambiance of Kensington. He was generally severe, or even solemn, and was rarely cheerful. Only with his inner circle of Dutch advisers did he relax. It was rumoured at the time that members of his court were homosexual, and that in particular two of